One of the things that's really been hard for me as my children have grown up is watching their sports. Um, it's not hard because I don't like watching their sports. I love sports. I love watching them at every turn. If you gave me an afternoon and said, what do you want to do this afternoon, Jeff? And if there was a game on, I would want to probably watch that game, whether it was in my house or, or out at a field somewhere or in a gym watching basketball. I would definitely want to be involved watching. The challenge that I've had as time has gone on is that I tend to get really involved in watching the teams play. Like I get involved emotionally when there are two teams that I don't care anything about, you know? So something will happen on, on one side, maybe there's a guy on one side who will treat the other side really poorly, and immediately I'm like, okay, I'm cheering against that guy. Can't stand it. Like that chippiness or um, arrogance on one side of, of a team uh, makes me want to cheer for the other side. And so you can imagine what it was like when my kids were playing uh, because it would just be ramped up. Anytime somebody was being chippy with them, I felt like I had to, I, I just felt every part of me wanting to defend my children and I, every part of me wanted to get involved in, in talking back to that, those kids. Of course, I wouldn't most of the time, but there were a few times where I would get involved by having a, let's just say, a, a, a kind conversation with the other player as the game was progressing. You know, he'd run by the, 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 the stands and I would, I would have, say something to him, right? Don't quit your day job, something like that. <laughs> I, and so I'd have this ongoing conversation. Well, this was one time my son was playing in the provincial basketball tournament and uh, his team was playing in one of their last games and there was a kid on the other team who was having the game of his life the game of his life. There's no way he normally played this way. I asked other people and he said, no, no, he's actually not that good. But today he was amazing and he was telling everybody about it and was really chippy and, you know, he'd clap in people's faces when, when, he, when he'd uh, get a call for him. So I just drove me crazy and I just got to the point, I said, no, no way, kid. You're not going to get out of this gym without a, a few bruises. So, so I, I started to, one of the things that he was doing is that he was, whenever he'd defend, he would stick his chest out and his hands way back so it looked like he wasn't fouling, but he'd like shove his gut in front into everybody. So every time that he would start uh, going by the, the floor and he'd look over because I was talking to him, I started doing this every time, right? And then he'd score and then he'd look at me and he'd run down the floor, and as, every time he looked at me, I'd be like, whoo. This went on for quite a while, back and forth, and, and he started talking to me, and every time I'd just do that, eventually I had to leave. Ironically, I had to leave because I had to go preach a sermon at the church, and when I left, uh, I stood up at the top of the stands. I was going out, and I, I was looking at him the whole time, and then he looked over my way, and he, was, and he, he kissed his fingers like this. And he goes, bye-bye. And I, of course, walked out the door, bumping into everybody who was coming in, who I didn't know, like this. And he was watching at me. He was watching me. And I, I got in the car, and I remember uh, driving to the church, thinking, okay, now I've got to preach the word of the Lord to the, to the people. And thinking, oh, Jeff, what is wrong with you, right? I mean, why can't you just go watch a game and just not do anything, anything like that? I don't understand why you can't just chill out. So I'm thankful in many ways that my kids' uh, high school sporting events are over. I did not succeed. Many of you are watching. I pray that you succeed far better than I did. Um, but when I thought about that, 
I've started to think, why, why did I do that? And the answer is because there's just some things that drive me crazy. So there's just some things that push my buttons. Things that I despise, arrogance, taunting. Oh, it just gets me absolutely out of my mind. The book of Malachi is pretty much a book describing what drives God crazy. The people of Israel have started acting in ways that he just can't stand. And so he's coming to them and, and correcting them on all of these different places and all these different ways that they've gone astray. And in this passage that I want to look at today, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, what you find is there are two specific places two specific things that God despises. Now, I've titled them first, uh, Despicable Devotion, and second, Devastating Divorce. Dis despicable Devotion and Devastating Divorce. So let me show you what I mean uh, by how much this drives God crazy and what he says in response to the people of Israel being guilty of these things. So first, despicable devotion in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. It reads, Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? So why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Now, I want to break this up a little bit to give you an idea why it is that he's asking some of these questions. Um, do we not all have one father? Now, there are people historically have said, hey, that's a great statement about the, the universal brotherhood of all mankind. See, it says in the Bible that don't we have one father? Did not God create us? So that means that every person who's born in the world created by God is a child of God. The problem, of course, is that when they point to this text to support that, it's not actually what it's talking about. You notice in the next line, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? It's, it's actually saying, no, no, this is, a, this is not about everybody everywhere. This is actually about the people of Israel, the people of the covenant with God. So they are called his children. In fact, that's what you'll find throughout the whole of the Bible. It's the, the people who are called children of God are people who are in God's family right? By faith. And so here you have a statement, do, do, do we not all have one father? And his, his point at the very beginning is, um, I know you guys look around and you see all of these other people who you might like or you might not like, but all of, all of you are in the same family. They're your brother or they're your sister. And the relationship that, that you have with God, the one that you treasure, right? That you get to pray to him and he answers. The relationship that you have with God is the same relationship that they have with God. I know sometimes it's hard to view other people that way, to view our brothers and sisters in the faith that way, especially when they wrong us or they do something that frustrates us. But don't we all have one father? Did not God create us? There's no one Christian, no one believer who has a relationship with God that surpasses that of, of others in terms of standing. Some might appreciate the relationship more, but everybody who's a Christian and prays to God has, is praying to their father, and we are brothers, brothers and sisters. It's funny, I have this little uh, crazy Christian shelf. Like, there's a lot of 
Christian kitsch in the world, right? Like the, they try to sell all sorts of things like, you know, mints that have scripture verses on them and things like that. But people give, have given me over the years all of these stuff, and I put it on this little shelf by, behind my desk. And one of my favorites was uh, this, this, uh, this little plaque. It's a, it's, it's a magnet that I can put on it, but it says, it says this. It says, uh, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. I think that's probably the way most of us view it. Yeah, 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 we all have a God who loves us, but I mean, come on. You know, he, he has a relationship with me that's a little bit different. But that's not the case. We all have one Father. Didn't God create us? So based upon that commonness, he then says, uh, why then do we profane the covenant by being unfaithful to one another? The covenant was given as an act of grace to God. I mean, Moses comes down and he makes a deal, he makes an arrangement with the people of Israel. It's like God himself gives them the law. Prior to that, Abraham was called out. Abraham didn't do anything to draw God's eyes. But this law, this covenant, this deal uh, basically told everybody, look, be brothers and sisters, you guys need to get along with one another. You need to love one another. So why then, if we're brothers and sisters and have been made by God and we have the same relationship with God and we're in the same family, why then do we, do we profane the covenant by being unfaithful to one another? My son, uh, Ethan, when he was a little guy, I remember driving around. Every once in a while, we go and get to McDonald's French fries with, for him and my, my little boy, Micah. They were three years apart. And Micah would be sitting in the back, just the little guy, and Ethan was a little bit bigger, and they'd be sitting in the back of the car. And I would always, you'd always, when you have kids, you always get each one French fries, right? You don't want to get one French fry and share it because that will never work, right? The older one will always destroy the younger one. But. So I gave each one of them a small French fry. We're driving away from the McDonald's or whatever place we got to French fries. And I remember my son, Ethan, was a tricky little guy. He used to... And Micah was gullible. He used to point out the window to all the stuff going by on the road. Ooh, Micah, look! And then Micah, of course, looked over. And as soon as he looked over, Ethan would take two or three of his fries. Ethan had a whole bag of fries on the side that he didn't even touch, but he kept picking Micah's fries. That's defrauding <laughs> your brother. It, it's, it's stealing from them. It's, it's wronging them. And of course, as a father, what was my response? Good for you, son. No, my, my response was to pull the car over and say, listen, you can't steal your brother's fries. They're his fries. I gave you fries. It was a gift of grace. I gave him fries. It was a gift of grace. Stop, stop demeaning my gift by stealing his. It's really, I think, the point that, that Malachi is, is getting at here. Why are you being unfaithful to each other? You're all in the same family. You've been given this gift of grace in the covenant. You didn't draw God's attention. You're here because of his grace. So why then are you treating each other with unfaithfulness? Now that word unfaithfulness actually probably refers to uh, things like uh, breaking one's, breaking one's uh, word when it comes to business dealings or marriage. In fact, marriage is going to be the one he points out. Why is it that you guys, when you're in the same family with God, and with each other, why is it that you are treating each other with such disregard when it comes to your word to each other? Shouldn't you be keeping your word with each other better than anyone else? You're both children of God. So his point really is that children of God should have relationships marked by promise-keeping, not promise-breaking. 
our love for our gracious God is seen clearly through our love for one another. This is something you find throughout the entirety of the scriptures. If you really want to know how, how someone feels about God, just look at how it is that they treat their brothers and sisters in Christ. So you have passages, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. The two go together. Love the Father means you're going to love the children of God. Ephesians 4.25, uh, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your, to your neighbor. Now specifically, your neighbor is, for we are all members of one body. It's your, it's your brother and sister in Christ is what he means. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. We're all this part of the same, same body. We're all children of God. You, you have this uh, weird thing going on in 1 Corinthians where... Um, where they're having lawsuits with each other, right? So they get really good and mad in the Corinthian church, and one of them decides he's going to sue the other person, and he's a Christian. And so Paul comes along and says, what are you doing? Like, seriously, what are you doing? And he says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 7, he said, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. You hear the language, right? But the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ should make some difference, significant difference in the way that we treat each other and the way that we keep our word with each other. But specifically, how is it that they were, they were doing this? You know, specifically, how is it they were breaking their, their word? Well, you see in the next little part of the passage in verse 11 of Malachi chapter 2, it says, Judah has been unfaithful. So specifically, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Well, what is it? Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, the, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. So the problem is that they're marrying women who worship a foreign god. So a little bit of background here uh, would, will help. Um, we've already said in the previous sermons that Malachi is writing to a group of people who've basically returned from exile, and they've come back to Jerusalem basically, and the city of Jerusalem is like a mess. It's a total, dev it's like kind of after World War II, some of those places that were totally bombed out, right? It's rubble. And so they come back to the setting, and even though they're able to go back to their homes, you know, they were taken away to Babylon and other places, they are able to come back to their homes, their, their ancestral homes, they don't have any money. And the people who have lived in Jerusalem all this last while, are not, they're not Jewish people. They were people from other, other places. And they are the ones who run the businesses in the town. And the only people that they'll do business with tend to be people who are related to them somehow, right? A cousin, a, a, a brother-in-law, somebody they know. That's how you get business done. In fact, they had these trade guilds. Right? So like unions. And the only way you could be a part of the union and do the business with the other folks in the union was if you, if you had some foot into their world. Now, their world wasn't Jewish. 
And so what you had is a bunch of men coming back with their wife from exile, showing up in Jerusalem, looking around and realizing, I can't make any money unless I have a different wife, unless I have a foot into their world. And so what I will do is I will get rid of the wife I have, and I will go marry another woman, a woman who is a pagan, a woman who is from other places, and she's, I'm going to marry her. And yes, she's got a foreign god, I get it, but how am I supposed to make any money if I don't do this? It's like the kid who's in the who's you know living in in this sewer, who eventually has someone come along and say, uh, "Hey, you want to join our gang? Your things are going to be much better." You might not like the gang, you might not like the idea, but he's saying, "Listen, the only way for me to have money is for me to do this," and so he joins it and he does things that he doesn't want to do. Yeah, so the men of Israel were worshiping other gods, but it's a big deal. Lord, if you didn't want me to worship other gods, you wouldn't put me in a situation in Israel where I had, to, I had to get in the trade guild by marrying another woman. So they were kind of justifying it on economic grounds. But when the Lord comes along and he talks about it, he, he's really upset about it. He's saying, look, you're basically cheating your wife and cheating me by getting rid of the wife of your youth and marrying these women with foreign, foreign gods. So it's a big deal that you're doing this in order to, <clears throat> you know, it's a big deal you're doing this and hurting your wife, which he's going to talk about in a minute, but it's even a bigger deal. It's doubly bad in the sense that uh, you're, you're intermarrying with the people of the land and they're bringing their gods into the people, into your family, and it's ruining your kids. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4 says, do, do not intermarry with them. This is at the very beginning when the people of Israel came into the land. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Like if you bring the, if you marry with these other women, you're basically marrying their gods. And it's ruining the entire community. It's ruining the, the religious devotion of the entire community. And so the, the Lord's response is, well, may the Lord remove him. Right? Even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty, let, let him remove him, even, even, even if, if he's showing up and doing his religious <clears throat> duties, which is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, here's these people who are unrepentantly ditching their wives and going and marrying another woman for economic benefit, and they're still showing up and presenting the sacrifices to the Lord like everything's cool. Like the big thing God wants is for you just to do the religious stuff, you know, sing the songs, give the money, show up on the right festival days, and then go do what you want, man. I mean, there's a difference between Sundays or a church and church life and the real world. Those two things don't meet. God just is concerned about all the rituals. That's what they were thinking. But you know, God's not as easy to fool as we like to think. This is really my point here. God's not as easy to fool as we like to think. Re religious duties are worthless if they aren't accompanied by a genuine heart for God. God's response is, kick them out. Even though they're doing all the religious duties, kick them out. Worship that's hypocritical is what I mean when I say it's despicable devotion. And guys, this is something that you find throughout the entire Bible is a warning to people who profess faith in, in God or in Christ. 
that eventually your heart might grow cold toward him, but you just keep doing the religious stuff thinking that, oh no, I'll just do the religious because that's what God cares about, right? The state of my heart is in rebellion, but the state of my outward appearance is, oh, I'm getting along with God just fine. Look at all the neat things I'm doing. I give a lot of money to the church. So you find really crazy passages like Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus is talking about you know, pe people who are hypocritical, right? They, they, they say one thing, but then they act a different way. And he says in Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, who, whose, whose heart and life is actually in line with what God wants, not who's just doing the religious rituals. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and listen to what they did. Didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look at all the religious stuff we did, like big time religious stuff, like driving demons out and miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, like I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I was uh, listening to an old sermon that I preached a long time ago. Somebody sent it along to me. I was listening to it the other day, and I, there was a story I told in it that I was reminded of about this guy who uh, came to church one day, and uh, he was with his, his girlfriend, who's a, who's a Christian woman, but uh, they were living together, and uh, they were sitting in, in the room, and I, I, I'm not sure what I preached about, but I preached a, a sermon, basically, that really struck this woman's heart. There's halfway through the service, they were holding hands, and then as soon as I, halfway through my sermon, she just stopped holding his hand. After the service, they got in the car, and she was really cold to him. And so he said, what's going on? And she said, I can't do this anymore. He said, do what? She said, I can't cohabit with you. I can't keep having illicit sexual relations with you and call myself a Christian. What that pastor just said is true. The, the God of heaven is not mocked. Well, the guy, of course, was really upset. So the first day of the new week, I got a phone call. And uh, I took the phone call in one of our phone rooms. And he said to me, look, this is what happened. I'm just wondering if you could just give her a call and just tell her it's no big deal. Because I know there's a lot of gray things in life. It's probably not what you meant when you talked about that. that but can you just call her and make sure it's no big deal? Of course, my response was, uh, it's a big deal. God does not take kindly to those who profess faith in his name, but who live secret, persistent, sinful lives in the darkness. That's what he calls despicable devotion. And it makes him so upset. <laughs> Pushes his buttons. So despicable devotion drives God crazy. Um, so does devastating divorce. Now he's going to narrow in <laughs> to, the, to the actual heart of the issue. And, and it is the fact that they're divorcing their, their wives. Yes, taking up another wife. Yes, marrying them and bringing their gods into the covenant community. Yes, all of that stuff. 
but it's their divorce that he's frustrated with. So, so look at verse 13 with me. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. you crying like crazy. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You would say, why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. This is an interesting passage. They flood the Lord's altar with tears. What they're doing is they're coming and they're saying, we're doing all the right rituals. Look at us worshiping God. Look at our sacrifices. They're amazing. And yet our, our prayers that we come with are not being answered like we want. Why, Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I just come and I worship and I worship and I worship, but you never call down and answer me. And the Lord's like, you're drenching the thing with tears, but the reason that that's happening is because there's something else going on in your heart. There's something else that's going on in your life with your wife. This drenching the, the altar with their tears, it just reminds me of a place. I went to a place called Chichicastanango in Guatemala a number of years ago. And uh, it's an interesting city. Right outside uh, the big Catholic church there, on the steps of the Catholic church, they sacrifice some chickens. It's weird, right? They sacrifice chickens on the step of the Catholic church, and then they go over this big pot, and they will throw the chickens into the pot. And they, they say these incantations. And if you sit there long enough and you watch this go on, one of the things you learn is that there is a, there's an order to the worship, right? There's an order. So, so somebody will come, and they will come with their chicken, and the, 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 the you know, witch doctor, he takes the chicken, he chops the chicken's head off and drains some of the blood out, and then he goes over and he says, says the same words every time while the, while the worshiper is in, a, in the same position, and then he comes and he uses it, throws it in the, in the pot, and, and the worshiper ends up going away. Then the idea, of course, is what the gods care about is that you worship in exactly the right way, right? You say the right words, you bring the right chicken, you cut the chicken's head off in this manner, and you throw it in the pot, and then when you do all of that stuff, it's like you have put your money into the pachinko machine and out comes stuff. You put your money into the into the into the one-armed bandit or, or the, sorry, that's what they used to call those, uh, my dad used to call those, uh, those machines that you can gamble on by pulling the lever. Um, but you put, you put your money into, into the, the, the vending machine and out comes the answer. And that's the attitude most people have <coughs> toward God. This is what he wants. He wants us to actually show up and give him the stuff that he wants, which is worship and the right way. And if I do the worship in the right way, his job now is to answer, right? You don't put the money in the vending machine and not get the stuff. If you do that, you start kicking the vending machine. So that's what, that's what they're doing. They're crying, banging on the altar like it's the vending machine that hasn't given them what they want. Why are you not giving me what I want? Well, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. He's the witness. Listen, in other words, he's like he's on the stand in the courtroom. And the charge is that you have wronged your wife. You have deserted her. You have been unfaithful to her. 
and they put God on the stand and they start asking him questions. Were you there? Oh God, were you there when they made their commitment to one another before God and these witnesses? Yep, I was there. I heard it. Did you see when they walked down the aisle? Yes. Did you see when they left the aisle? Right, with this kiss we seal our marriage. You see the wedding rings being handed. Yes, I saw all that stuff. Did you then see what happened afterwards when he left and he went and, and, and took up life with this other woman so that he could have financial benefit and he left this woman and the rest of his family behind? Did you see that? And God's like, I saw it. You think nobody sees this or cares? I see it. I see it. He's a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her. That word unfaithful there probably means that you've deserted her. Now listen, I need to pause really quickly. This is not talking about every kind of divorce, all right? This, this, this passage is dealing with what I would call unjustified divorce. It's when a spouse leaves another spouse without biblical warrant. Now, when I say biblical warrant, there are passages in the New Testament that show that Jesus himself says, listen, uh, marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word porneia, that is just grounds for divorce and remarriage. Uh, Paul adds to that and says, well, if, if, if a husband abandons his wife, that's grounds for divorce and remarriage. There are others who debate about, you know, how we should interpret them. So, so abandonment and adultery are the, kind of the, what usually people point to. How should we understand, how broadly should the term pornea be understood? Does that include like persistent porn use? And we can have debates about that. And does, does abandonment, is abuse a form of abandonment? And we can have debates about that. And that's really good to talk about. I don't want to get sidetracked into that because... Those things are all about justified divorces biblically, but this passage is talking about unjustified divorces. When one spouse has no biblical warrant to divorce the other spouse, but does it anyway, and then still says they're a Christian, still does the worship stuff, still says me and God are good, and that's what this passage is dealing with. Malachi's talking about unjustified divorce. So the question that we have to ask in this last section here is, what does God say about this kind of divorce? How does he feel about it? And how does it happen? Now, there are three things at the end of this passage that I think you'll see that are true about unjustified divorce. So here's the first one. Unjustified divorce is awful because it breaks what God has made. Verse 15, it says, has not the God, one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? He seeks godly offspring, you know? He wants to see your children grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's what he wants. But he made you. Now, that language sounds like, oh, this is a return to what it said at the beginning, right? He's talking about how God, you know, made humankind. No, actually, the reference here is probably the making of the marriage the one God has made you, husband and wife. He brought you together. And because he made the marriage, because he created that work of art, 
You don't have a right to ruin it. Only the creator of it gets to ruin it. My daughter has been recently drawing uh, these really cool uh, drawings. She, she'll look at a, a picture on uh, the internet and she'll draw a picture just like it and she's getting really good at it. It's, I mean, so proud of her. She shows up and she shows it to me. I'm like, oh my goodness, Sophie, this is so fantastic. But she's, you know, she treats each one of these like they're treasures and they are treasures. And she'll hand them to me and I'll look at them and I'll set them aside in a special place. You can imagine what would happen though if she showed up to me and, and, and she gave me these pictures. And then when she went away to draw the next one, I took my big Sharpie marker and I made a big mustache on all the people she's drawn. <laughs> I'm so funny, right? This is what your friends sometimes do. <laughs> they think they're being hilarious. Look, I'm gonna ruin this person's hard work, hard, hard uh, sought after work of art. She would come back and she'd be living. I actually asked her, what would you do if I did that? And she said, uh, I'd be very, very angry, Dad. Why? I said, why? And her response is, because it's not yours. Right. The person who draws the thing has the authority to tweak it, right? They can come back and say, ah, I don't like that line, and they can change it. Hey, I want to put a mustache on this guy. And they can do that. But if somebody else does it, they're doing something they don't have the authority to do. That's the point here. If God made it, your marriage... You don't have authority to break it. Jesus, when he was responding to, to some of the religious leaders in his day who were asking a question about divorce, and they said, hey, uh, Moses permitted us to get divorced. Here's what Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 5. He says, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you that law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Your marriage is God's work of art. It's His doing. Through His providence, He brought you together. Through his care and his grace, he sustains your marriage. It is not yours to break. So unjustified divorce is awful because it breaks what God has made. And he feels about you breaking it the way that Sophie feels about me drawing mustaches on her art. Second, unjustified divorce results from not guarding one's marriage. It doesn't just happen. Verse 15, again, says, Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So, be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Be on your guard. Be alert. Notice what could go wrong with your marriage. Don't assume it. You were driven in a city. Man, I've been having to drive in some new cities in the last little while. And, you know, you're in this new city, and even though you've got the Google Maps open or the Apple Maps, you're trying to pay attention to that. You don't know where you're going, and if you're in a city where there's a whole bunch of traffic, you're freaking out because you don't know that if you take the wrong turn, you're going to end up in, you know, someplace off the shore of Cuba. But 
you got your wife or husband there and you're like, so pick a, you take that and you, so I can pay attention to everything that's going on. There's an, there's an attitude of alertness that comes when you're, when you're driving in a new place. It is so different than the attitude that you and I have when we drive around our house or the same road that we take to work every day. You know, I see, I see people and uh, they're, they're driving down the road, you know, and you've probably seen it. There's some woman she's doing, she's sitting at a stoplight and she's doing her makeup. Other guys texting on his phone or, you know, trying to give food to the kids in the back or eating food, right? Because that's what you do. You, you're used to the neighborhood. You know where the turns are and stuff. So you assume, you assume it and you act in ways that you probably shouldn't act in the car. Dangerous ways, in fact. What, what, what this passage is saying is, look, the way you should treat your marriage is always like you're in a new city. Because there is danger everywhere. And the reason that most accidents happen within whatever, you know, 20 Ks of people's homes is because they relax their guard. And they do all those crazy things. And next thing you know, they, they hit somebody or they, you know, they, they break the, the law by driving off the road in one direction or something. Because they're not paying attention. Right. That's how unjustified divorce happens. Doesn't just one morning somebody wakes up and says, I'm going to get divorced. It's not because one thing happened, you know, she burned the toast. He came home late from work. It's not because of that. It's because of a long, consistent, and persistent lack of regard and awareness for what's going on around your marriage. Be on guard, he says. I mean, practically speaking, what this really should encourage us is to say, look, um, praise your spouse. Yeah, I know, they've done the same thing for over, over and over and over again, but have you told them how much you appreciate that thing? Make time for them. I mean, I know you assume that they're going to be there no matter what. Yeah, but don't drive around like it's just an assumption, you know, treating, treating this with disregard. You, Build the relationship even as it's going on. I mean, romance is not a bad thing, right? Buy some flowers, for goodness sake, boys. Communicate. Take some time to listen. Hear what's going on. That's, that's, how, you, that's how you take heed. That's how you pay attention. Unjustified divorce results from not guarding one's marriage. And third, unjustified divorce is hateful and it's violent. Here's the last little part, verse 16. The man who hates and divorces his wife, because that's what you do when you divorce your wife unjustifiably. You hate her. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, that that, that person does violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty, so be on your guard. And do not be unfaithful. That language does violence. Literally, in Hebrew, it says he covers his garment with violence. He covers his garment with violence. So the picture in your mind should be the guy who commits unjustified divorce is like the murderer who's just murdered his victim and his entire, her blood is splattered all over him. That's what's happened. That's the kind of violence that's taken place here. Do you know uh, when the Allies in World War II dropped the nuclear bomb on uh, Hiroshima, two things 
happened. One, when the bomb dropped initially, it incinerated all the people in a, a certain radius. It just, it just burned them up. But then, outside of that radius, it, the radiation spread into the city so much that for years to come, there were some issues with cancer and all sorts of radiation poisoning and things like that. So there was the initial, and then after that, there was the long tail of devastation. That's divorce. That's unjustified divorce. That when it hits, it just incinerates people, but then the after effect, the way it affects children, the way it affects the rest of the family, the way it affects everyone's life who was involved in it, just is like a radiation that's seeping through their bodies and they can never get rid of it. It's violent, it is hateful. I was, uh, sadly, heard a story and knew a guy who, uh, who decided to leave his wife for another woman. And when the news came out that he was gonna do it, he had to go home and get his stuff. So he went home and got his stuff and his wife was, of course, in tears, pleading with him not to go. And then his children joined in and they, while he was gathering his stuff and walking out the door to go see his mistress, the children were clinging to his legs as he walked out the door. Daddy, no, daddy, no. And peeled them off, and he walked, he walked out. That's violent. Look, my point here is that unjustified divorce is devastating. Those who commit such an act and think God's cool with it are just kidding themselves. No matter how many songs they sing or how much money they give to the church, You can see how God feels about it. But here's the question that you should ask at the very end, probably the most important one. What do I do if I'm guilty of despicable devotion or devastating divorce? What do I do if, in what I've just described here, you can see yourself? Is my life over? Is there no coming back? Look, the answer with Jesus is always the same. If you are willing to turn away from where, what you've been pursuing, the devastation that you've caused, if you're willing to own that, to recognize what you've done, say, I don't want to do that anymore, and you turn around, the Lord is there not just with open arms, he is there running to you, ready to restore. Let's kill the fattened calf. Put a ring on my son. But you've got to get to the point where you're in this pig slop. And you realize this is not the life I wanted. It's devastating me. It's devastating everybody else. But you've got to be willing to turn away from it, and then turn to the Lord. Our temptation is to turn away from God because we're like, we've made him upset. And I don't want to be around somebody I've made upset, but the solution is always, not, is always found toward God, not away from him. Always. Jesus loves those who've devastated 
their divorces or their, their marriages and had despicable divorces and devastating consequences from it. And guys, I'm telling you that the Lord has a power to redeem things that you cannot even imagine. That guy who walked out that door with his kids on his legs and peeled them off months later came to his senses realized that what he had done was not right. In fact, he had come to the conclusion that he was not even a Christian. Even though he was pretending all this time, and he turned toward the Lord on his knees and said, Lord, I'm, I can't fix any of this. I've destroyed so much. You can meet him today. He shows up at church with his wife and his children who dearly love him. It's a, it's a challenge. It, it's not easy. For anyone, it's a scar that probably will be there for a long time. But the Lord is growing flowers after the bomb has dropped. That could be you. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for uh, this passage. It's pointed and yet life-giving. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn away from the things that we've done in our past, the things that we're committing our hearts to now that we know are devastating to the, those we actually love. Father, help us turn away from the hate and the violence and instead turn to you, receive your forgiveness, and let your Holy Spirit fill us so that we can live a new life. Would you bring restoration and peace and healing where we've brought devastation? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.